You are listening to Holy Words from Holy Cross, the sermon podcast of Holy Cross Evangelical Lutheran Church in Nazareth, Pennsylvania. We hope you find these words a blessing in your daily walk with God. Please visit us on the web at www.holycrossnazareth.org or in person at 696 Johnson Road, Nazareth, Pennsylvania. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Don't be all else to me, save that thou art. Would you join me for a word of prayer? Gracious Lord, such a glorious day, we are reminded of the glories of creation. How Colossians teaches us that all that was made was made through the Word of God who became incarnate amongst us as Jesus. Remind us of the glories of our redemption as well on this day. Fortify us by your Word and strengthen us through your sacrament in faith toward you and in a more robust discipleship and witness. We ask this as we come before your word now in Jesus' name. Amen. I didn't think about this during the first, um, first service, but uh, it is especially appropriate after the first game day for Penn State, since that affects this area a little bit at least, uh, to, to start with this. You, have you heard this phrase? We're in it to win it. Yeah, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's normal. That's something where we, uh, we, we hold up a lot in our culture. And it, to win it is an indication that, that you're committed to the goal in question. And it actually turns out it's not much fun to play a game that you're not committed to playing. Um, the sociologists who study this call it game theory. Um, but it's, it's, it's a more complex thing, as you'll, you'll hear in a moment, than just gaming. We, were, we, we learned this by an anecdote that's become legendary in our family. Uh, my nephew, at six, uh, was far more competitive than my son at five. And one time they were playing Candyland. And, um, you know, I mean, it was like rolling dice for death. Now, I'm not talking about, when I say you want to be in it to win it, I mean, not with your ego all wrapped up in it. That's, that's not much fun. But it's not any fun to play, for instance, ping pong against somebody who's not going to hit the ball back to you. You've got to know the game and play. Well, um, my, my, my nephew was rolling for, for blood. And uh, at one point, he got way ahead. He's like, yes! And my son says, well, I'm just going to fly to Princess Lolly. <laughs> Takes his piece of, and my, I watched this, my nephew watched the top of his head come off in rage. Um, they were playing two completely different games. They just didn't know it till that moment. <laughs> um, you, know, you not only need to play a game well, you not only need to play with heart, but you need to know the rules of the game. And, and uh, they were playing by two different sets of rules. As we get older, the games get more serious, and most games are more serious than Candyland. I remember when I was uh, when I was in college. I'm thinking a lot about that as we go back and forth to Ian's college now. Um, my big brother in my fraternity was a political science major, and for them, it was the game Risk. Now, Risk is a game of world domination, okay? And they would play for an entire weekend. First with his political science majors on campus, and then as we all got access to the burgeoning internet, which was until the end of college for me, um, they started playing against teams at other colleges. And it was, I mean, 48 hours. They would start Friday night and finish Sunday afternoon, and the only breaks they took were for pizza and beer. They were serious about it. And I got thinking, 
that as I'm now, I'm now 53, so we're all those people I was at college with are in their 50s now. These are the people filling offices at the Pentagon and on the president's cabinet. And the seriousness with which they played risk is now absolutely germane to whether they're going to be able to manage the burgeoning global conflicts around us with China and Russia. That could affect my son's life in a very direct way. We play the games we play as children in order to train for the games we need to play in life. And by game, I don't mean something that's playful and fun. Game theory studies complex competition amongst people. It scales up. The little kid who very resentfully at the end of the t-ball game goes, good game, (laughs) is the kid who may need to someday make a hard decision on a board or be a foreman at a job and decide what's fair as they divvy out the work to all their workers or maybe someone who needs to, a soldier who needs to accept the surrender of their enemy only an hour after that enemy shot their best friend. We train in games because the games get more serious and in that sense there is no game more serious than discipleship because there is nothing more serious than the competition between sin and righteousness in the world. It's not only in the world, it's in our hearts, it's inside of us. Which makes it even harder to learn the rules and go by them. And this, it's those rules and the game we're, we're involved in whether we want to be or not that God is lifting up and teaching us about through the Apostle Paul today. Just as he does in 1 Corinthians, where we all know the text, 1 Corinthians 12, the whole chapter is dedicated to spiritual gifts. And as I taught on Wednesday night, spiritual gifts are not given to you. They're given through you to the church. Meaning it's not a spiritual gift till you use it for the building up of the people of God. And so naturally, St. Paul's talking about spiritual gifts, meaning the work of the Spirit inside of us leads into a conversation about love or reflection on love that we all hear at all the weddings, right? Love is patient, love is kind, it is not envious or arrogant or boastful or rude, and it goes on. Well, you need to think about love when you think about gifts, spiritual gifts, because they're for people. They need to be used in love. They're not for you, for your personal benefit. Same thing happens here in Romans, shorter form. The first eight verses of Romans 12 that we heard last week were about spiritual gifts. Now the verses we're hearing 9 through 21 are about love and how we use those gifts in the community that God loves. Loves enough to give those gifts to us for its benefit. Well, St. Paul gives kind of a laundry list here. It's quick and dirty. It's fast. It's a little less poetic than 1 Corinthians 13. But he begins with, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil. And um, it's actually not a great translation. I'm usually big with the ESV. I like it. But I, this one is not, I'm not thrilled with it because it actually doesn't say let love be genuine in the original. It says let love be without hypocrisy, which I think has a little more punch. Let love be without hypocrisy. And what does that mean? It means to hate evil. Now, I generally don't read to you commentaries. Deacon Michael and I were talking last weekend about the relative value of biblical commentaries. Most biblical commentaries are dry as dust and make for really boring reading. (laughs) 
They're good for sermon prep, but not for sermons. Um, but the one I was using this past week, I, I felt like the commentator almost strayed into poetry at one point. So I wanted to share with you what he wrote about this section. He says this, he says, The proper Christian response to evil is not simply to avoid it, but to be viscerally repelled by it. However, living as we do in a world opposed to God, it is difficult to keep the edge on our moral sense. The world grinds us down and softens us. Our concern for the spiritual softens us. It pulls us into its sticky web. Demands that we agree with the prevailing culture, no matter how far removed that culture is from godly values. If we are to abhor what is evil, we must practice the spiritual disciplines of scripture reading, prayer, and Christian fellowship. To abhor what is evil requires daily regrounding in the faith, so that we can accurately discern the line between good and evil. See, it's easier to be repelled by some evils than others. We find it easy to hate genocide, terrorism, and child molestation. We find it easy to abhor our daughter's casual dalliance with a young man not of our liking. We find it easy to have a horror of our son's drug addiction. We find it less easy to hate those evils that tempt us personally. Whether sex, alcohol, money, ambition, narcissism, self-indulgence, or passivity in the face of evil. Especially like that last one. It reminds me of Edmund Burke's line about how the tri- all that's required for the triumph of evil is that good men do nothing. Paul calls us to hate all evil. To hate it in all its forms. To hate each instance of it. To hate the evil within us as well as the evil within our neighbor. To hate evil as the firefighter hates the hidden ember that threatens to undo all of his or her work. To hate evil as a mother hates the drugs she finds in her son's bedroom. To consider evil the enemy. To hate it passionately. To oppose it. To search it out and eliminate it. To practice tough love against it. To engage in a lifelong war against evil. There is a tension between let love be without hypocrisy and abhor that which is evil. We must hate the sin while loving the sinner. A tough balancing act. But evil hating is one of the ways that we demonstrate genuine loving. We hate evil because evil has the potential to destroy the beloved. We hate evil because evil has the potential to destroy the beloved. That is why God hates evil. Why God engages in war against evil. It's why God's love is so genuine and without hypocrisy that it takes Him in our flesh to the cross and then into the grave and then into the very depths of hell to rescue us who don't know how to love ourselves or each other. This is what Jesus is exhorting us to get engaged in. It's to become part of God's warfare against evil when he says, take up your cross and follow. We are following along after Christ who has conquered the greatest of all evils so that we can 
through His strength, begin to tackle the little evils that continue to surround us, that assault the people we love, that tear apart our communities, our businesses, and our families. But if you engage in that kind of warfare, let me, let me share this with you, if you're not aware, you'll get tired. <laughs> you'll get overwhelmed. You'll at times feel despair. You'll feel like Jeremiah felt in today's reading. Even to the place where he says to God, are you going to be like a stream that dries up at the exact moment I need you most? And God says, no. No. Turn to me, or as other translations have it, repent. Come back to me as you're calling the people to come back to me. And I'll make you like a fortified wall made of bronze. Something where the assaults of those who are enthralled, enslaved to evil they may love will not be able to prevail against you. Nobody's story teaches us how to do that, I think, better than the story of Monica. Monica um, was an amazing lady supportive of all her children, wanted to see them raised up, uh, especially spiritually. I mean, like all parents, wanted to see them succeed in the world too, but, but was especially encouraging of them spiritually. She had one son who was, is black sheep still uh, a, a phrase? Um, <laughs> off the reservation. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not sure what the politically correct term would be. This kid was running crazy. And... Um, and he was a genius to boot, which is not helpful. If you've got a kid who's smarter than you, you know how hard it is to argue with them. Um, I have one. <laughs> um, he was a world-renowned people teacher. People literally came from all over the world to hear his lectures. And mom knew that in his private life, he was a mess. So addicted to the pleasures of the flesh that, and he himself admits this in his own memoirs. He's like, it's like, I knew what the right thing to do was and said, please don't give me the strength to do it. <laughs> he chased after things and then because he was chasing after those things, he wanted to justify his behavior a little bit so he started teaching things that weren't exactly true too. And mom saw it and I'm... We don't have this recorded. I'm sure she put in little digs here and there that parents do with their kids over the years. <laughs> but what she did was, as she supported, she, she took the long road of war against the evil in her son's life seriously. And she prayed hard. She prayed, she counseled, she encouraged. Not for one decade. Not for two decades is as you were rounding out close to three decades of prayers that seemed to make no impact at all on her son with his mistress and the child that, and his addiction to all the different pleasures of this life. At some point, he was sitting in a garden, thinking as he thought, because that's what he did for a living. And he heard a child singing, Take Up and Read take up and read and beside him sat a copy of the scriptures and he picked it up and read it and in that he read there a passage about how 
the things we love the most, what the Bible sometimes calls sin, can become chains to us. Chains we will defend with our lives being chained up in. And he recognized himself. And he finally surrendered to the faith his mom had taught him as a child and he had abandoned wholeheartedly. The son she had prayed so earnestly for went on to become, probably without exception, I think I can say this, the most important Christian after anybody in the Bible. His name was Augustine. Everything we learn here in every church, doesn't matter which church you go to, has been impacted by him. Non-Christians have been profoundly impacted by his thought as he applied that genius to thinking through the ramifications of the gospel such that they are going back to his sermons now from the 5th century and finding applications to our bioethical issues of today. None of that would have happened without the perseverance and the abhorrence of evil in a mother's heart as she saw her son enchained by it. Last Sunday, we were outside. (laughs) But if we'd been inside, that candle would have been lit because last Sunday was Monica's day in the church calendar. She's an example of profound faith of relying on the strength of God when her own strength was insufficient, of of love that was without hypocrisy, and hated the evil in her son's life and in herself. She purified herself and prayed for her son, and it was only at the end of her life that she saw her son come back to the faith. We need to be so long-suffering and persevering in our commitment against evil first inside ourselves then in those spheres of influence in our lives and earnest in prayer for the people we love because then we're part of what God's doing in this world would you join me for a word of prayer Lord as you call us to this kind of struggle We know we can get exhausted in the work, but we know it is the only work worth doing. That everything else we do, whether we haul trash or make laws or teach or anything we do, build buildings, all of that is but the surface work when the real work is fighting the evil. We ask, Lord, that you give us strength and we thank you that you have conquered the final evil that bars our way. You have set us free. And so, Lord, we ask that you strengthen us and remind us to lean into your strength in the critical moment. Strength that lets us confess our own faults and failures. Strength that lets us battle against what might seem to be overwhelming evil in the world, knowing that in the end, You have already conquered it and through us will conquer the evil in us as well. We ask for your blessing in this and all things in Jesus' name. Amen. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart Not be all else to me save that thou art 
be thou my best heart in the day and the night. Waking or sleeping, thy presence my light.